This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. As we start a brand new week together on the program, we would love for you to dial in with your phone calls and questions. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to the best and most beautiful producer in the whole world at the station. 340-9585. I can get right to questions, but first, a quick reminder that tonight is our Sweet Summer Devotion series continuing. Uh, Lauren Alf will be sharing. I've known Lauren since she was a little girl, and I'm excited to hear what she's going to share. Uh, That will be at 7 o'clock, and of course, you can watch it at calvaryessay.com. I always encourage you to come in person if you can because the Q&A session doesn't get live streamed or on tape and it's always super, super rich. So uh, that will be starting at 7 o'clock. And Pastor Ken is back from vacation, so he will be teaching his men's Bible study at the same time. Let's get to the questions that we have while we await your phone calls. Um, Let's go to the phone call first. It just came in. San Antonio, Texas, line one for Efren. Efren, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Hi, Efren. How are you? I'm doing well. Hey, uh, God bless you, and thank you for what you do for the San Antonio community. Um, I love your show, and I love the the frankness in the way that you uh, preach the gospel. Thank you, Efren. I appreciate it. Pastor Ron, how can I help minister to somebody who is a Jehovah's Witness? And can you uh, maybe enlighten us a little bit about their beliefs and the best way for me to point them to Jesus Christ? I'll hang up and listen to your answer. Thank you very much. Thank you, Efren. I can try. I, I don't know if you heard me say, mm, when you asked the question. And, and the reason, Efren, is, is because if people don't want to hear, they won't hear. It's just that simple. Now, the biggest problem, and the only effective way I've ever dealt with the Jehovah's Witness person, is to, to let the joy that I have be something that they're jealous of. 
uh, you don't see joyful Jehovah's Witnesses. They're working and they're working hard to try to please their God. And the problem, of course, is they don't have the right God. And, um, you know, you, they're going to argue with you about the Trinity. They're going to argue with you about the person of Christ. They're going to argue with you about uh, the, the many translations of the Bible that have been messed up. And, um, you know, they have to go to the Watchtower. Charles Taze Russell established very um, strict guidelines and rules for biblical interpretation. And, and, and basically, you just tell them, look, if you want to be free, if you ever want to be free from all of that legalism, if you ever want to be free to, to, to introduce yourself to the real Jesus, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be praying for you. Now, relative to their beliefs, um, their Jesus, and this is the, the whole problem, their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. They, they use the same words. Uh, sometimes they'll say the same things. They can, they can often sound like really frustrated Christians, but Christians nonetheless. And the problem is, is that the Christ they're serving is Michael the Archangel. They believe that Jesus is just another apparition of Michael the Archangel. And, um, you know, their, their, their whole doctrinal position, Ephraim, is so messed up from the beginning. It was only 144,000 were going to make it to heaven. They never dreamed, Charles C. Russell didn't, that, that there would be more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. They were the faithful ones who were going to be rewarded. The problem, of course, is that now there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who have been deceived. And so they start sort of modifying their theology in the sense that, well, there's different levels of heaven, and you know, you never know if you're going to, where you're going to go, or if you're going to get there at all, until you get there. And and we can offer them freedom, Ephraim. We can offer them freedom. And there's really not much you can do. They're going to pull out the, the, the watchtower, and they're going to tell you that this is who Jesus is, and here's what the Bible says, and they've got their anti-Christian, anti-Trinity um, um, recitations ready to go but the only thing you can do is let them see the peace the joy and the security you have in Christ there's tons and tons of resources out there for Jehovah's Witnesses uh, we had a guy here went to the church for a long long time before he moved back east and he grew up in a Jehovah's Witness family and um, uh, he was on a mission to convert every Jehovah's Witness but the truth is and I told him this over and over if they don't want to hear they won't hear. So you can pray. Lord, give them ears to hear and a heart to respond. And keep praying for them continually, especially if this is somebody whose family, Ephraim. Keep praying for them continually because this is a satanic headlock that they won't get out of unless they turn to Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible. Thank you for the kind words and I'll be joining with you in prayer for those people. Let's go to Reuben calling from Seguin on line two. Reuben, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi, God bless you, Pastor Ron. Uh, it's a Thank you. To uh, speak to you again, just really quick, I want to give you an update. My dad is doing terrific. I want to thank everyone out there who has prayed for me and him. The nurses both. His nurse told me today that he's done a complete 180 from the first day that he went in there that he's almost ready to come home. So let's pray that he gets to come home this week or next week. Uh, Good, I have a question. You. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you and everybody that prayed for him. I have a, a two quick questions, and then I'm going to listen on the app. Um, I just finished the book of Ezekiel, and I started the book of, of Daniel. 
And the last, I think, four, maybe three chapters or so, uh, God was speaking to Ezekiel, um, or the angel was speaking, I guess it was, um, and giving him the dimensions for a temple. Now, was that Solomon's temple, um, or was it a different temple that uh, he was giving him the dimensions and, you know, instructions on how to to to, uh, to build it, and um, or was it a prophetic um, uh, uh, you know, um, how can I put it? Was it something that was supposed to be built, or was it Solomon's temple? Okay, and the second question I read, and I never noticed before, when I started the book of Daniel, it introduces Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I never noticed that they had other names, that they weren't, that that wasn't their real names, that mm-hmm. I can't remember their Hebrew names. Why were, why were their names changed? And I'll get off and listen on the app. Thank you, Ruben. God bless you. Um, let me answer the, the Ezekiel temple first. It is a temple yet future. That was prophecy. You know, Ezekiel is arguably, along with Zechariah, the most difficult book to interpret in all of Scripture. I've got a, um, my, my whole commentary on it online, uh, Reuben, and all of my studies there, so if they help, have at it. Um, but it is, uh, it is such a glorious book. Now, as you know, uh, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Uh, Ezekiel was um, uh, prophesying in Babylon, while Jeremiah remained uh, in in Jerusalem, and um, um, a lot of the the, the, the imagery uh, is so difficult to understand. But but in this particular case, um, Solomon's temple, um, the, the the Mount of Solomon's temple is going to be measured in Ezekiel and also in Jeremiah, by the way. They, they, they measure the temple. Whenever there's a measuring done prophetically, it's God claiming ownership over this. And what they're going to find when that day comes, this is during the Great Tribulation, at the very beginning of the Great Tribulation, what they're going to find is that um, Solomon's temple sits just outside the Muslim mosque that's there currently. You see the picture in that big golden dome. Um, right now, that, that they lay claim to, to that mountain in Jerusalem. But what the Antichrist is going to do is he's going to, to do some measuring on his own. And the way he's going to come to prominence is by offering peace between the Arab and the, the, the Jewish world. And he's going to do it by allowing Israel to build that temple. And so this is a tribulation temple. This is the temple that when you get to Daniel chapter 9, it's good that you're reading in Daniel now, when you get to Daniel chapter 9, the the Antichrist causes the abomination that causes desolation. He's going to desecrate that temple uh, by demanding to be worshipped in the Holy of Holies. And that's when, of course, uh, during the Great Tribulation, the Jews are going to rebel against him. They're going to flee to the rock city of Petra in Jordan. And uh, and God is going to keep them safe through the remaining three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. But that is a, a millennial temple. It will be built with the resources of the Antichrist. And uh, it will be the, the, the incident that propels him to worldwide fame as a man of peace and safety. So that's what they're doing there. Now, in Daniel, when their names of, the, of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were changed, 
the reason they were changed is because having been stripped from their homeland, remember in the very first exile, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took only the best and the brightest. That means Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the best and the brightest. And what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do, his whole plan, was to strip every vestige of their faith in God, every vestige of Judaism from them. He was basically stripping them down and then going to rebuild them in his image. Well, obviously Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't. So the, the new names, and we know them because of, of uh, their, their foray into the fire, uh, their new names were given to them. They were Babylonian names. He was stripping completely away their identity as Jews. That means they had to have a new name. And while their other names had meanings to worship the true God of Israel, um, their, their new names were, were fashioned after the gods of the Babylonians. So that's why he changed their names. That's why he tried, he tried to change their diet. Uh, he tried to strip every vestige of Judaism away from them so that he could remake them in his own image. And of course, we know that it didn't work because their faith triumphed marvelously. You are really, 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 Reuben, going to enjoy the book of Daniel. And I got all my stuff on Daniel online for free as well. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Marilyn. Uh, She says, what exactly is gossip versus just having an honest conversation with someone about someone else? Marilyn, I think, and I, I don't know you, so please don't take this personal, but I think we all know instinctively the difference between gossip and just talking about someone. So let me try to make it as easy as I can. And this is the rule that I've always tried to go by. If you're speaking of someone negatively, and that someone is not there, then it's crossed over to gossip. Whether what you're saying is true or not, that's not the issue. The issue is, are you trying to cause them harm? Now, I know we Christians, we sometimes have a a spiritual sounding way of gossiping and making it sound like prayer or just concerned conversation. But here's the thing. You never want to say anything bad about somebody who's not there. Now, Marilyn, one of the things you can do, and this is for everybody in this audience, for those of you who are social media folks, look at your Facebook conversations or look at your Twitter conversations or your Instagram conversation, whatever you've got. And if you're speaking of somebody in an unflattering manner, again, it may be true. You may feign serious concern for them, but anything bad that you're saying about somebody, even if it's true, is gossip. Now, what do you do when you have something that you need to talk about that really is true? I've had people say, no, you know, you pastors are just trying to silence people. And sometimes people have to be called out. Well, you're right, but they need to be called out in person, face-to-face. Face-to-face. That's the only way to do it. So the person that you're talking about to someone else, the person is the person that you should go to and say, you know what? I've, I've heard some things or I've seen some things that have caused me to be concerned And there's nobody I can talk to about these except you. So would you sit down with me and talk about these things? And then in a kind way, in a loving way, be very honest with them. 
But when you're talking about somebody who's not there for the conversation, and it's negative in any sense or in any tone, Marilyn, we know that's sin. Well, you know, I'm just praying about somebody, and we'll have people, we've had corporate prayer groups for a long time. We let people know that, that we're not here to gossip about somebody. God knows every detail that you're praying about. So we don't need to know these things. And when you're talking to someone about somebody else and you haven't gone to the person directly first, then you've crossed that line. So, Marilyn, I hope that makes sense to you. That makes it really, really easy for me. Richie asked, Pastor Ron, didn't Jesus break the Sabbath law? Um, Richie, the answer is no. Uh, He... um, broke intentionally and willfully, not sinfully. He broke the religious leader's interpretation of the Sabbath law. But here's the thing. He was right and they were wrong. You know, Jesus said, no, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, we know Sabbath is rest. And so the law itself was provided by God to give man rest. And Jews had turned it into this laborious, tiring overwhelming set of rules and regulations that would make anybody sort of cringe. And so when they would see Jesus' disciples, for instance, rolling grains of wheat in their hands or in their fingers, or Jesus healing somebody on a Sabbath, uh, and they said, see, you violate the Sabbath. And that really was, to them, the straw that broke the camel's back. That's why they began to plot Jesus' murder. Richie, Jesus tried to set him straight. He came to teach. Now think about this for a moment. They said, we've never heard a man teach like this. We've never heard someone teach with this authority. And yet when he violated the sacred Sabbath in their view, they freaked out. Now they claimed to keep the Sabbath to the letter of the law. The problem is they were breaking the spirit of the law over and over and over Again, Jesus said, you, you, you tithe and you tithe your mints. And can you imagine how, how tedious that would be? But you err because you don't love people. You're not here to serve people. He told him on one occasion, if any of you had an ox and you fell into a hole, of course you'd go get it. You'd bail it out. The ox is valuable. How much more the son or daughter of Abraham? Remember the one time, Richie, when they really set up a trap, they thought they had him. They knew him so well, and I love the fact that they knew that if there was any way they were going to trap Jesus, it was going to be when he was doing something good. And Jesus came in the synagogue, and right at the door of the synagogue, they set up a man who had a withered hand. And Jesus looked at the man with the withered hand. He looked at the religious leaders. I'm thinking, you guys think I'm, I wasn't born yesterday. He knew exactly what they were doing. And still, with their eyes on him, you talk about courage, with their eyes watching every movie made, he told the man to stretch out his hand, his withered hand, and he did, and he was healed. And in the Jewish mind, in the religious leader's mind, that was it. He violated the law, now we've got to stone him, and they began in earnest then to plot his death. So he violated their interpretation Jesus was giving them a Bible study with sermon illustrations and they didn't want to hear it because they didn't have hearts to hear. 
Good question. I like that one. Thank you very, very much. Wednesday. That's a name. This isn't the Wednesday show. I think this is the name. Wednesday says, how literally should we take books like Genesis as we read? Um, Wednesday, here's a good rule of thumb. Whenever you can take it literally, you do. Now, not just Genesis, but there's symbolism in in all kinds of books. You know, when you read in the Psalms that the trees of the field clap their hands, we know that we can't take that literally because trees don't have hands. But when God says the morning and the evening, or the evening and the morning, rather, or the first day, we can take that as the evening and the morning and the first day. When he says day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, we can take that as the creation account in six literal days. We read about uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about God's promises to Abraham and, and all the uh, other stories that people don't like to hear, the Tower of Babel. Uh, we have to take those things literally because if we don't, Wednesday, we lose the value, the historicity of those passages of Scripture. So literal interpretation is always the best whenever possible. Now, usually, it's easy to point out that which is symbolism or metaphor. God will destroy them with the breath of his nostrils. We know God is spirit, the Father's spirit, not human like Jesus. So we know he didn't have a nose, he didn't have nostrils. So that is obviously a metaphor. But by and large, we know exactly what those literal passages are saying. And while it might be hard to believe, you know, when you hear the, the earth is millions or billions of years old, um, and God says, no, 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 I did it in six days. Um, we have a decision to make. Do we believe God? Do we believe his word, his inspired, infallible, inerrant word? Or do we believe the Discovery Channel? And when we start taking things literally, that's when we're prepared Wednesday to to fight the fight. Let me say one other thing. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, if you don't take them literally as written, then every single crucial doctrine for New Testament church is destroyed, devastated. If Adam and Eve weren't real, if they weren't the first two people, then we're all lost because the whole doctrine of original sin crumbles. If they weren't the first to sin, Adam as our federal head, then then we didn't inherit his sin nature. And again, doctrine fails. So we've literally got to interpret these things or the faith that we believe in, the faith that we stand upon, falls apart. And Wednesday, if you don't take Genesis literally, those first 11 chapters in particular, then most of the book of Romans is completely useless. The greatest treatment of our Christian faith ever penned. It means absolutely nothing if, in fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis aren't literal. So I hope that makes sense to you. I always try to emphasize that. That's how important it is Wednesday to take 
those things as little as we can. Mark says, will we have free will in heaven? Uh, Mark, we will have free will in heaven, but in our glorified, resurrected bodies, it will be our will to do the will of our Father. I hope that makes sense to you. It's not like we're going to struggle. You know, should I do this or should I follow God? You see, when the sin nature is ripped out of us, when we inherit incorruptible, we're sown corruptible, we inherit incorruptible. When we do that, then the only thing that we're going to ever want is what God wants for us. We're going to be in his presence. Our bodies are going to be like his without the scars, without the wounds. And the only desire of our heart is to worship God, to honor God, to serve God with every ounce of strength that we have. So yeah, we will have free will, but our will will be to do the will of God always. You know, that kind of describes Jesus in the sense that he was tempted in all ways as we were, but without sin. Jesus felt things that we feel, but he never gave in to a, a willfully sinful thought, never a sinful thought at all. So I can't wait for that day, Mark, when my flesh is gone and I no longer have to worry about the choices I'm making. It will be wonderful to be able to look at Jesus. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our final half hour for the monday show here is a question from anonymous uh i guess it's a woman i know that uh in looking for a potential husband what should i consider the most important Anonymous, I hope you got a pen and a paper because I want you to write this down. There is only one thing. Now, I'll talk about other things in a moment, but there's only one thing that's at the top of the list. This man has to love Jesus more than you do. Period. Not a Christian by word, but a Christian by deed. Watch a man you might be interested in. Is he kind? Does he walk in the power of the Spirit? Is he um, gentle? Does love come oozing from his pores? Because that's the man you want. The man who loves Jesus. And so often, especially when people get tired of waiting, they settle for less. And you never want to do that. This is one of those things that you've got to commit to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I don't want to get out from your will. I don't want to get ahead of you. I don't want to lag behind you. Open my eyes when the man that you have for me comes 
through. And when Jesus sends you that man, and he will, this desire to be married is a, a desire he's put in your heart. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What that means is he'll put that desire in your heart. So the desire for a husband, a godly husband, is a, from God. He wants to satisfy that. But that man will be somebody who really loves Jesus. He will be committed, heart and soul. Now, there are other things, of course. Um, he needs to be attractive to you. You need to be physically and emotionally attracted to him. You know, a lot of times we think, well, God, I'll settle for anybody. and Well, God's probably going to send, some, send me somebody who's ugly. No, he, he, the man that you marry needs to be attractive to you. There needs to be a physical chemistry. The sexual relationship in a marriage is very, very important. I know sometimes we get so spiritual, say, well, you know, it's not about sex. Well, of course it's not about sex. But sex is the gift that God has given you when you get that right man or when the man gets the right woman. So make sure that that's the case. After watching his walk with the Lord, make sure that he's somebody you can follow. There's consistency, the highs and the lows are sort of evened out. To keep your eyes open. And for me, personally, I know people don't like it when I say this, but there's no better place to look for a, a spouse than in church. Because that's the place where you can up close, up close, watch them from afar. That's the place where you can see who they really are in those unguarded moments when they're going to expose themselves. But those are the things important. It's, it's God will give you somebody that you're attracted to. He'll give you somebody that, that, that will be your partner. In other words, you can't do what God's asked you to do, nor can he do what God has asked him to do without the other one. The two become one, and it's really, really important that you understand that. So thank you, Anonymous. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to line one and talk with Deborah from San Antonio. Deborah, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Deborah, are you there? Oh, Deborah dropped. We got to it quickly, too. Deborah, please call back. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Gary. Uh, when, I'm sorry, how do we know when to take authority over evil spirits? Gary, uh, I'm... I'm, I'm Jumping to a conclusion here, uh, stop watching charismatic craziness on TV or on the radio. We have no authority. Even Michael the Archangel, who was the equal to Satan, even Michael wouldn't talk directly to the devil. The Lord rebuke you. And we hear this preachers with this nonsense Oh, I take authority of you, I bind you, I command you. We have no power at all. The way we take authority over evil spirits, Gary, is simply to be with Jesus, to walk in the Spirit, and then remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation, the word test can be substituted as well, no trial, no test has, has, has come upon you except that which is common to man. 
And when you are tempted, he, God, will provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. In other words, you can prevail over it. So don't shout at demons. Don't talk to demons. Um, I do my best, Gary, to ignore them altogether. Now, I'm not naive. I know they're real, and I can sense when they're really attacking. Having said that, when those opportunities, I don't even like to call them opportunities, when those instances occur, I never want to spend one minute, Lord, you handle that for me. I'm going to tuck in behind you. Hebrews says he's your big brother. Big brother's job is to protect their little brother. Lord, I'm going to tuck in behind you and you do the fighting. We have no power over these supernatural beings. Jesus has all the power. Now, Christ lives in us. But believe me, we don't need to shout and yell and take authority. There's no value in those words. I bind you. I command you. We can't command anything. All we need to do is say, Jesus, you handle it. Because the demons always did what you said, not what I said. Gary, I always think of the the seven sons of Siva. They saw that Paul would cast out demons and and they thought, wow, I can make some money doing this. And so they would go out to these demon-possessed people and say, in the name of the Jesus Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And the demons would look at each other and say, well, Paul we know. Jesus for sure we know. But who are you? And then the the demon-possessed host um, beat the snot out of them. I mean, they ran away bloody and they ran away naked. That's a great picture of what it's like to fight the devil when we're shouting. And one other thing, Gary, um, when you're going to deal with evil spirits or demon possession or anything that has to do with demons, believe me, you need to be a man walking in the power of God's spirit. You need to have no unconfessed sin. You need to be sure your heart is right with God and that his is the power with which you'll fight. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you, Gary. We get so much bad teaching uh, about uh, our position over authority, uh, demonic authority. Um, Just remember, we have none. Barry says, could I have your opinion of John MacArthur, please? Also, David Jeremiah. Uh, Let me start with David Jeremiah. Um, I listen to David Jeremiah um, often. Um, I like him doctrinally. Barry, he and I are probably closer than any other pastor preacher that that I listen to. Um, So uh, I obviously have high regard for him. Now, I've met David Jeremiah, and the thing that I admire the most about him, he's older than I am, and this guy is just all energy. He's had cancer. I haven't had cancer. This guy never stops. He told me one day, he said, you know, I'm, I'm getting to the end of my time, but I want to make the most of that time. I'm not doing less than before because I'm getting older. I'm doing more than before. And it's not a works thing. He's not doing it in his own strength. But the idea is when he goes to see Jesus, he wants to go flaming out. And and I admire him a great deal. And, and I have no difficulties um, with any doctrinal position, any significant doctrinal position he's ever taken, and I'm trying to think, and I think there's only been one time he's ever said something that I kind of raised my eyebrows and thought, really? And it was over something really, really minor. So, 
Uh, I recommend David Jeremiah's ministry uh, hardly. Now, regarding John MacArthur, and I get a lot of John MacArthur questions on this program. Um, I'm beginning of late to appreciate John MacArthur's ministry more and more. Now, uh, Barry, John MacArthur is a Calvinist. Um, he is a weird Calvinist. Uh, by Calvinist standards, he is a Calvinist who is uh, pre-trib, pre-mill in his eschatology, uh, and he's got a really solid view of the end times, which is unusual for Reformed theologians. Uh, and and um, John MacArthur is a great Bible teacher. He is a prolific author. He makes a lot of sense whenever he's not talking about election or predestination. Um, it breaks my heart that he is a Calvinist. Uh, I think he's wrong, clearly. Um, but but I, I can discern the good from the bad, and so I, I actually just turn him off uh, when he comes on the car read or anything if he's going to be talking about Reformed theology. Now, I said my opinion of him is growing. Uh, John MacArthur, who has been the pastor of Grace Church for 50 years, another man who's older than me. I like people that are older than me, if you haven't noticed. Um, he just took a stand. California is, maybe you know Barry, the governor, has prohibited churches from meeting. Um, 50 people at the most. Um, just just silliness. They've got a 3,000-seat sanctuary. And uh, he finally had enough. There, there's some other people in Southern California, in all of California, by the way, who are exercising their right of... of free speech and the right to peacefully protest. And they are keeping their churches open. Uh, John MacArthur complied when the initial quarantine orders came. He complied uh, even after that when they said, okay, you can come back, but only little ways. And the Lord just started kind of dealing with his heart and finally got to the point where, look, the people need to be in church. They need the body of Christ. They need to be taught. They need the fellowship. It's not good for people to be alone. And John MacArthur took a very, very public stand and put himself right in the the, the crosshairs, the figurative crosshairs. I don't want to be misunderstood. The figurative crosshairs of the governor. And uh, the governor has vowed to make an example of John MacArthur and another guy who is a Calvary Chapel guy, uh, Jack Hibbs from Chino Hills, because they have been very public and the response to their public declaration has been overwhelming. Uh, John MacArthur had 3,000 people show up in his church the first Sunday that, that uh, he violated the, the, uh, the, the state order. And they're doing the right thing. They're doing the right thing. We submit to the governing authorities unless and until it violates what God has told us. And John MacArthur, at a time when a lot of people are thinking about retiring and taking the easy way out, he put himself in that position where he is now a target of the governor. So pray for John MacArthur and Jack Hibbs, if you remember that name. He's a Calvary guy, uh, and I admire his ministry. Um, so my, my, my estimation of John MacArthur is growing all the time. Thanks, Barry. appreciate it. Um, Kelly says, are conspiracy theories valid? And how should Christians view them? Um, conspiracy theories are not valid. 
Um, sometimes, Kelly, it amazes me and frankly embarrasses me that Christians will participate in some of this stuff, flat earth and all kinds of other things. Um, it's a, a, a dangerous waste of time. Let me also say this, and here's the answer to how should Christians view them. With all of my heart, I believe they are demonic. I believe that when those conspiracy theories are spread, and we've got an internet that just spreads them, we've got radio waves that spread them, and as soon as that happens, I believe, because I've seen it now over and over and over, this isn't just tangential uh, thought. This is this with my own eyes, and I've dealt with it with people in my own church. When people start believing these wild conspiracy theories, the enemy grabs hold of their brain, and he's unwilling to let it go. Why? Because the theories become all-consuming. And people are no longer interested in reading the Bible. They're no longer interested in what God has told them to do. You know, this is the will of God. We don't care because we we get this conspiracy theory. And it fosters rebelliousness. Rebellion is as of the sin of witchcraft, we're told in the Old Testament. So you should view them like a bottle in your medicine cabinet that has skull and crossbones on it. They are demonic. They will grab hold of your brain and uh, the enemy simply won't let go. Very, very dangerous, Kelly, um, to entertain them at all. At all. You know, one of the things, and I've tried to share this with people, and they just don't get it. We have the truth. You know, I do an exercise where I'm counting down, and, you know, um, um, when I get to five, which is grace, and, and the truth that we have is the grace of God, the gift of God. And then from five to four um, is, is for me truth. And I, I, I count four by going Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when I do four the next time in the same series, I, I just say, thy word is truth. And then I have another four to go. It's, it's thy word is truth. And um, why would I let go of the truth? for something that is speculation. And since we have the truth, we don't need to be bothered with things that are not true, even though they tickle our imagination. We think, well, that's interesting, or always suspected that something was up. When we start falling for conspiracy theories, we're in real, real trouble. Thank you for the question. I pray, Kelly, you stay away from them completely. 340-9585. I think we got about 10 minutes left in the program, so we'd love your calls. Christopher says, when praying for healing, should we ask God or demand that he heal? Um, Christopher, anytime you use the word demand or command God to do anything, you know you're in sin. You know that's flesh. That's not of the Spirit at all. So when we pray for healing... We should, as Jesus did, close that prayer by saying, Nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. You remember, Christopher, when the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 12 spoke about his thorn in the flesh. We know that it was a, a, a painful, physical ordeal. We know its source was Satan. We know that because it tells us. But he was physically really, really hurting. So whatever it was, and nobody knows what it was other than it was a physical ailment, 
Paul prayed in this particular story three times. God, take this from me. Take this. And Jesus answered him by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. That's Jesus' nice way of saying no. And then he let Paul know what the reason was. Paul, I'm praying, whenever you feel this pain, I'm trying to remind you to be humble. Paul said because of the surpassingly great revelations, God had to keep him humble, and Paul would eventually get to the place where he could, my grace is sufficient. So Christopher, we have no right to demand anything from God. When we are demanding anything from God, we've forgotten who God is. And this nonsense again with this faith and prosperity churches out there is that no, we can plead the blood of Jesus and because of the blood we can demand God's healing and he will heal. You know, Christopher, I was listening. Um, I, my, my brain never shuts off, so I have to go to sleep uh, with an earplug in my ear listening to uh, um, a radio show, Christian radio show, and um, I'm listening to teaching. And I was listening to one just last night. And I have a lot of nightmares, so I have to be careful what I listen to. But there was a guy on local radio, and he was telling people that we can command the coronavirus to go away because we have the blood of Jesus, because we've got the power of heaven at our disposal. And he said, it's time for Christians to start commanding the coronavirus out in the name of God. And it broke my heart, Christopher, Because whenever we do that, we're no longer praying in the Spirit or according to the Spirit. And we're putting people in a position where their prayers simply cannot be heard. So don't demand anything. Everything ought to close with thy will, not my will be done. Not because we're trying to be nice, but because we really and truly believe that the very best thing that could ever happen to us is to be in the will of God. Here's a question from Wayne. Do you think Jesus ever got sick? You know, Wayne, I've never thought of that. Now, there's not a lot I haven't thought about in my my studies, and I I like to dwell on the humanity of Jesus. We know he got tired. We know that he was sad. We know that he wept. We know that he laughed. We know those things because we're told in the Bible. But we're never told whether he was physically sick. So the answer is, I don't know. Now, he was tested in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So maybe that included getting sick. Maybe he got the flu. Maybe he got diarrhea. Maybe he threw up. Who knows? But what we know is he never sinned if he did. And he never disconnected from his father. And yet, because he was tempted in all ways as we are, maybe he did get sick. I don't know. I know, Wayne, I don't do very well when I don't feel well physically. I think Jesus, if he got sick, he hindered a lot better than Pastor Ron does, for sure. 340-9585. I think we're now just about five minutes into the for left in the program. Thomas wants to know, are tattoos okay for Christians? Uh, the answer, Thomas, is yes, they're okay. If it's okay with God, it's certainly okay. Um, the Bible doesn't forbid tattoos. Now, I know people are going to say, well, Leviticus 19, it says, but but again, this is why we need to study to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of God. The tattoo that's being talked about in Leviticus 19, remember, that's under the law. That was markings that were used in the worship of false gods. So that's really important. That's not tattoos, body art like we see them. 
So Thomas tattoos are fine. I, I think they're expensive. I'm averse to pain. So I'm not going to be getting any. By the way, at my age, everything's already sagged. So if anybody should get a tattoo, it should be me. But but that's not my thing. On the other hand, we got a whole bunch of heavily tatted people in our church, and their tattoos tell a story. I've got a son. Paul and I have our older son who is really heavily tattooed. Now, he wishes he wasn't now. He got those tattoos when he was young. And yet every tattoo is a reminder of who he used to be. And then he can praise God for who he now is. And he's able to tell people that from time to time. Uh, we've got a, a lady in our church, one of my pastor's wives. I love her with all of my heart. And she's got a tattoo that tells the story of her conversion. And she shared that story with lots of unbelievers, some of whom have given themselves to the Lord. So yeah, tattoos are okay. Tattoos are something like everything we ought to pray about. God will make you examine your heart and your motives. If you just want body art to look better, he's probably going to hit the brakes. But uh, again, just generally, there's nothing wrong with tattoos. Um, If you're okay with it and God gives you the go ahead to do it, anything not of faith is sin, Romans 14.23 says. And if that's the case, then go for it and enjoy it. But make sure they're tattoos that honor the Lord. That doesn't mean they have to be Bible verses or crosses, but make sure that it's not something that dishonors the Lord. And if you'll remember that, you'll be okay. Last question. Paul wants to know, I may have to come back to this one tomorrow at the top of the program. Pastor Ron, how will you respond if you're threatened with arrest for opening your church? Um, Paul, I don't know. That test hasn't happened yet. I would like to think that I would respond um, with courage. Uh, I would be polite. Um, I would stick out my hands to be cuffed. I uh, wouldn't like it, of course. Um, but but I would I would let him know what Peter told the Jewish authorities. You decide for yourself whether it's right for us to obey man or obey God. As for me, we cannot stop talking about this name. And Paul, that's really important. We are approaching a time in our nation where doing what I do is going to be illegal, where people are going to be threatened with arrest. Our church in the United States of America, it's hard to even say this, is under attack like at no time before. Our freedom to worship, our freedom to sing in church. They're trying to take that from us. And sadly, there's too many churches who are just going with the flow. So if I'm threatened with arrest, I hope I'm not a big baby. I hope I can honor God with my arrest. Most of all, I just pray that I'll be faithful. Thanks for the question, Paul. Hey, that's the end of our program for today. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The Word, remember our sweet summer devotion and men's studies tonight at 7. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.